evening, everybody. I'm quite delighted to introduce Professor David Levering Lewis, who's going to speak uh, this evening. Uh, Professor Lewis is a professor of history at New York University. He's currently also a visiting fellow of the American Academy in Berlin. He's also, of course, most importantly, an LSE alumnus from my department, <laughs> International History. Uh, wrote his PhD in the department on French liberal Catholicism in crisis 1926-1952. I think when one hears a title like that, one thinks, and here's someone who's going to specialise in uh, French liberal Catholicism 1926-52, but that's not the case uh, at all, of course. Professor Lewis has written with enormous breadth on many topics, enormous cultural breadth, which I'm sure many of you know, because, of course, that's why you're here. He started off as a French historian there, writing on, on the Dreyfus affair. Uh, he's also written on uh, colonial history and the scramble for Africa, uh, which I remember reading as an undergraduate. So that was published some time ago, I have to say, <laughs> in which he looked at uh, African resistance to colonialization. I think it was an indication that here was someone who wasn't simply going to look at uh, the imperial powers, but was going to look at the reactions, the perceptions of powers. And perhaps it's then natural that his other main area of expertise became a civil rights movement, African-American history, uh, early on with a biography of Martin Luther King and then followed by a study of the cultural policies of race relations in the 1920s and the 1930s when Harlem was in vogue and then culminating uh, in a biography, his interest in biography, civil rights, the African experience in the two-volume biography of the American intellectual and radical Du Bois, a two-volume work, both of which volumes won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, which I think is, is unique. Having said all, all that, this lecture, of course, is on something entirely different, which goes back uh, to the, the seventh century, God's Crucible, Islam, and the Making of Europe. Professor Lewis describes it himself as a good old-fashioned narrative history with one or two theses, uh, but I expect we'll hear many theses Perhaps I should say that uh, Professor Lewis will speak for about 30 minutes, then he's, he's very happy to take questions for about another 30 minutes. Thank you very much, Professor Hartley, for that. Uh, uh, introduction. It's a, a great pleasure to be here. Uh, this didn't exist when uh, I was here, and I'm sure much of LSE uh, is, uh, exists in new iterations, and uh, I hope to have a tour of the campus, as it were, uh, tomorrow before uh, we return to Berlin. Uh, and I hope to come back uh, before uh, leaving, leaving Europe. Um, <clears throat> I um, have uh, taken uh, bits and pieces from uh, this book, uh, and so as I read, uh, I will leap uh, from uh, period to period. Uh, I, I think uh, there will be an inherent logic in what I'm doing, uh, but you'll say, ah, well, he's just talking about that. Uh, why is he now talking about this? Well, it's because you can't talk about everything, and uh, I want to talk about the things that I think uh, illuminate the uh, theses and points in this a good old narrative uh, history. And so uh, the, the title of the talk is a counter-narrative, Islam and the making of the first Europe. 
And the short of it is that without realizing it at the time, the idea for God's crucible, Islam, and the making of Europe 570 to 1215 germinated a quarter century ago in Khartoum, a three-month research junket from Southern California. In the summer of 1982, carried me from Paris to Istanbul by way of the Republic of Djibouti, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt. My time in the Sudanese capital, just shy of a month, was spent reading old British Army intelligence files on the activities of the Muslim fundamentalists who had stopped the East African advance of the British Empire for the better part of a decade after 1885. To Victorian England's astonishment and continental Europe's unconcealed relish, the ragged dervishes of the messenger of Allah, al-Mahdi, and the successor, al-Khalifa, held the world's mightiest empire at bay. The history of the Sudan's Mahdiya regime comprised a large part of the race to Fashoda, European colonialism, and African resistance in the scramble for Africa, a 1989 book written partly from my 1982 cartoon sojourn. The secular republic of the Sudan vanished after Sunni extremists led by ideological descendants of the Mahdists came to power in 1986. As years passed, the cautionary experience of having observed the power and appeal of Islamic fundamentalism in Khartoum, even if only from my lateral vision, began to register with a growing insistence, all the more so as it came to seem reasonably certain that the supreme modernizing empire of the 20th century, the United States, was sleepwalking on a collision course with Islam similar to Great Britain's at the end of the 19th century. For a historian, thinking about the present means thinking about the past and the present. At the beginning of the 8th century, the Arabs brought one of the greatest revolutions in power, religion, culture, and wealth to Dark Ages Europe. The Arabs were to stay there until the end of the 15th century, and for much of that time, until roughly the beginning of the 12th century, Islam in Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain, was generally religiously tolerant and, above all, economically robust. God's Crucible engages a perspective rarely addressed <clears throat> about the seven centuries of Islamo-Christian cohabitation on the continent of Europe. In that perspective, the Battle of Poitiers in 732 and Roland's martyrdom in the Pyrenees, almost 50 years later, are pivotal moments in the creation of an economically retarded, balkanized, and fratricidal Europe, which, by defining itself in opposition to Islam, made virtues out of hereditary aristocracy, persecutory religious intolerance, cultural particularism, and uh, perpetual war. Instead of being incorporated into a cosmopolitan Muslim regnum, unobstructed by borders, devoid of a priestly caste, animated by the dogma of equality of the faithful and respectful of all religious faiths, proto-Europe's evolution was set on a, a contradistinctive course. 
The Battle of Poitiers, intercepting Islam as it rounded the Pyrenees, and the Chanson de Roland, venerating an ambush powerfully, nurtured the identity of the new men and women east of the Pyrenees who became known as the Europenses. History is written by winners. With few exceptions, Edward Gibbons' well-known pronouncement has influenced the value judgments rendered by historians as to the desirable outcome from the competition between Islam and Christendom. The great historian shivered as he imagined the results of an Arab victory at Poitiers. Perhaps the, inter the interpretation of the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford and her pupils might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Muhammad. Yet, winning in Poitiers actually meant that the economic, the scientific, and cultural levels that Europeans attained in the 13th century could almost certainly have been achieved more than three centuries earlier had they been included in the Muslim world empire. Islam came to Europe on horseback a mere 79 years after the death of Allah's messenger in 632. By then, Muhammad's new movement was securely launched and, relatively, and the relatively small armies commanded by his four rightly guided successors, the Rashidun, had destroyed the Sassanid Empire of Iran and driven the Eastern Roman Empire deep into Anatolia and out of Egypt and Palestine and Syria, mutually exhausted after a quarter century of war, these empires were uniquely vulnerable to the unexpected vigorous attacks from the Arabian Peninsula. The fifth caliph to rule the Dar al-Islam, or House of Believers, was Caliph Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. It was Muawiyah I who pushed aside the Prophet's Hashemite family in 660, thus inspiring the Sunni Shia schism, in order to found the Umayyad dynasty. Muawiyah's Umayyads propelled Islam across the known world until their bloody near extinction in the middle of the next century. For the first time since Alexander the Great, an imperial belt of finance, trade, and commerce emerged stretching from Samarkand toward China and Sindh on the edge of India to Tangier on the Atlantic and Sijil Nasa at the fringe of the Sahara. The while, Arab mastery of politics and economy, culture and technology sharpened in less than a century to an edge as fine as that of tempered steel wielded by Bedouin cavalry. Sorting through the political sediment of Latin Christendom after the fall of Rome, the great medievalist Sir Charles Oman described Visigothic Iberia as having been exceptionally opaque even for the so-called Dark Ages. The new rulers were a minuscule percentage of the total population, at most some 400,000 Visigoths, among no less than 5 million Hispano-Romans, Jews, and Greeks, along with Galicians, Basques, and other autochthonous peoples. Until the late 6th century, <clears throat> they safeguarded the Visigoths, the integrity of caste, not only by a ban on intermarriage, but by the Aryan creed to which most of the German tribes had originally subscribed during the 4th century. 
Since the Council of Nicaea in 325, the doctrine of the Trinity as espoused by Rome's pontiffs had contended for preeminence over the Arian Christianity imported from the Eastern Empire. Recarid, one of the few distinguished Visigothic kings, finally realized that religious conversion was a reasonable price to pay for a truly national monarchy, and thus he formally embraced Roman Catholicism at the Third Council of Toledo in 589. Thereafter, Jews were increasingly persecuted. As near as can be determined from al-Hakam's narrative of the conquest of al-Andalus, a battle for Hispania was fought on or before 28 Ramadan 92, July 1911, in and around the region the Arabs called Shaduna, today's Medina Sidonia. The Rock of Gibraltar, Jebel Tariq's, Tariq's Mountain, bears the name of the Berber commander, Tariq ibn Ziyad, who led 7,000 Berber horse and infantry from Ceuta to Algeciras. Visigothic Hispania imploded with bewildering speed, and the fiercely persecuted Jews of Sevilla, Cordoba, and Toledo assisted the Muslims in securing those cities. Tariq and his people had come to stay for almost 800 years, but to speak of this moment as the moment of confrontation between Islamic civilization and Christian Europe, however, would indulge uh, historical anachronism. There were, as yet, no Europeans. The term itself, Europensis, awaited fabrication a hundred years in the future by an Andalusian priest. <coughs> to the Quran's injunction that there be no compulsion in religion, the tradition of relative freedom in civil matters was to be especially honored in Al-Andalus. Proselytizing was alien to Islam in Al-Andalus as elsewhere in the Ummah. Moreover, the tax benefits of slow-rate conversion always main, uh, remained uh, compelling. The taxation from the status of the transition uh, from the status of Dimi, a protected person of the book who paid the Hisya poll tax to Mola, or more precisely, Mawalid, a Muslim of native Iberian stock released from the Hisya began in the first years of the conquest and steadily accelerated. From this policy of, uh, flowed in good time the fabled convivencia, an ethos of storied tolerance and mutuality in which Muslims, Christians, and Jews would long enjoy, if not with the prodigious success too often romanticized ex post facto, civilized coexistence that might have served as a model for the continent. To be sure, it was not social equality that distinguished the convivencia, but tolerance secured by restrictions. Infidels were not allowed to erect new houses of worship nor repair old ones, nor were Christians and Jews to hold public religious processions, pray too loudly, or proselytize. Sumptuary laws required the display of badges and that Dima clothing be distinguishable from that worn by Arabs. The bearing of arms was forbidden. Islam rolled across Iberia like a tsunami. East of the Pyrenees lay what the Muslims called the Great Land, Alard al-Kabira, where on the Roman road south of Poitiers, 
the Arabo-Berber army of the much-admired Amir of Al-Andalus, Abdallah al-Gashiki, would encounter the solid, the stolid mass of Charles Martel's Franks in 732. The paved road from Saracusta, today's Zaragoza, undulates across Navarra to Pamplona and then shimmies into the Pyrenees until it swerves out of Roncevaux down into the Basque region of Aquitaine below. This was the route the Amir chose for the conquest and occupation of southwestern Gaul in 732. In numbers unseen in the living memory of Gallo-Romans, no less than 30,000 and perhaps as many as 50,000 Arabs and Berbers swarmed over the landscape of Aquitaine. 15,000 were campaign-hardened warriors, Mukatila, hungry for booty and prime for martyrdom. They came with their women and their families, a small nation of people on the move. The great Umayyad Caliph Hisham ibn Abd al-Malik had spoken from Damascus. Seen today from the plateau near the village of Moussé la Bataille, the Roman road south of Poitiers is like a thin line drawn by a piece of chalk straight across a green slate. The plateau afforded the Franks the advantage of wide-angle vision and downhill engagement with the enemy. On this chill October day, Charles the Bastard, the Frank commander, ordered his men to lock their seals together so as to form tight, compact rows of infantry stretching the width of the gradual incline and in a parallel with the Roman road. Obedient to the prophet's injunction, Al-Gafiki gave the order to engage the enemy after noon prayers. Jihad met its match on the slopes of Moussa la Bataille as wave after wave of the Amir's horsemen caromed off the Franks' human burn. Eventually, momentum tipped and the Franks pressed forward in lethal lockstep like a giant scythe slicing through high grass. A Catholic monk somewhere in Al-Andalus left a fitting description of the astonishing situation of the day. The men of the north stood as motionless as a wall, wrote Isidorus Pacensis. They were like a belt of ice frozen together and not to be dissolved as they slew the Arabs with the sword. Charles the Bastard's apotheosis as the hammer Martel commenced from that day. In that same historical instant, the people who prevailed at Moussé la Bataille obtained a new and prospectively potent identity. In calling the victors at Poitiers Europenses for the first time, Isidore Potentius's neologism introduced a holistic concept that transcended, definitionally at least, the savage particularisms of the 8th century, a meta-category to replace the lost, lamented Civitas Romanum. Whether or not Poitiers had indeed assured the, the, the future of Western civilization, the battle served the vaulting, the vaulting ambitions of Charles Martel's family, the Pippinids, and imparted to the Frankish people a special identity and ascendancy in great measure derived from both the victory and the victor's narrative. Frankland, the greater part of modern France and Western Germany, would be transformed, writes the Carolingian historian Pierre Richet, from an outpost of Mediterranean civilization 
to the center of a new Christian civilization. Poitiers was Europe saved by the Franks from Asiatics and Africans. Ernest Lévis, one of the arbiters of early 20th century historiography, exalted. The great German military historian Hans Delbruck, writing in the early 20th century, declared there was no more important battle in the history of the world. Writing at the beginning of this century in carnage and culture, landmark battles and the rise of Western power, American military historian Victor Davis Hanson was of the same opinion. Today, Charles Martel's defeat of Abdallah al-Ghafiqi is buried deep in the collective memory of the West, even though seldom recalled today with the hyperbole typical of an earlier, more culturally self-aggrandizing age. An occasional Western scholar has asked a more philosophical question about Poitiers, however, one that eschews considerations of nationality and religion. Had Al-Ghafiqi's men prevailed that October day, two mid-20th century French historians, Jean-Henri Roy and Jean de Dios, enumerated the benefits of a Muslim triumph at Poitiers. Astronomy, trigonometry, Arabic numerals, the corpus of Greek philosophy, quote, we, Europe, would have gained 267 years, according to their calculations, we might have been spared the wars of religion. Coats closed. Muslim perspective on Poitiers contains its own surprises. Far from being an end to Islamic incursions, Poitiers accelerated them. For the remainder of the decade after the slaughter at Musée la Bataille, Franks and Latins were pressed nearly to the breaking point by ever larger and strategically more venturesome attacks from Al-Andalus. Instead of being the definitive terminus, 732 represented a significant spike on the Islamic invasion graph. Later, when the loss of the great land was understood to be permanent, Muslim historians like al-Masudi in the Golden Prairies would pass over Poitiers with minimum, uh, minimal <clears throat> commentary. But in doing so, unlike the enemy Franks who took all the credit for saving Europe, the Muslims would rightly blame their own internecine preoccupations as the real reason for Christian Europe's survival. Well, the real explanation of the importance of Poitiers lay in the fact that the Muslim world changed dynasties in 750. Ninety years of Umayyad history was annulled in the great Berber revolts in the Maghreb and in the politico-religious eruption in the Iranian East in Khorasan. There was a time when few of the foundational outcomes that constitute European civilization as we know it were anything but inevitable. The French nation and the papacy were entities in utero when the Muslim dawn broke over the Iberian Peninsula. But history can predict the past, however, and from that perspective, it is evident that the logic of Europe's creation as a coherent culture and polity inhered in the commencing coordination and collaboration of the bishopric of Rome and the regime of the Catholic Franks. For three centuries, the soul of the Franks had been preserved incarnate 
through the unbroken line of Merovingians from Clovis dying in 511 through mostly unremarkable Childerics and Dagobert. Their thaumaturgic persons were thaumaturgic persons were sacred, their royal divinity, a mystical fusion of pagan Troy and Petrine Rome. Do nothing kings, why feignant, yet nothing could be done without them. Charles Martel, like his father and grandfather, served as de facto ruler of the realm, palace mayors, prime ministers. That his son and heir, <clears throat> Pippin the Short, would ever wear the crown seemed dim. Circumstantial evidence suggests that Winfrith, the tall, gangly, Northumbrian holy man, beatified as St. Boniface, broached papal sanction for the overthrow of the Merovingian dynasty. Regime change in return for a pledge to defend the Holy Father from the awful scourge of the Lombards, the last of the German invaders to carve out a kingdom in Italy. In 751, almost ten years to the month after Charles <clears throat> the Hammer's demise, the last Merovingian king, Childeric III, was deposed. Boniface officiated at the coronation of the new king in the Abbey of Saint-Denis, Pippin the Short, mayor of the palace of Austrasia and Neustria, became King Pippin I in his 37th year, the first Carolingian royal. The palace compound at Pontion, near Metz, vanished without trace more than a thousand years ago. A curious fate for a place where Preliminary decisions were taken that lay the foundations for the nation, the first nation state in, in history. The supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, the irreconcilable alienation of the Latin West from the Greek East, and the emergence of religious fanaticism and chronic reciprocated hostility of Islam and the Occident. The first pontiff to travel voluntarily beyond Italy, Stephen III and his coterie, reached Frankland in late December, 753, at the most parlous moment facing the Holy See since the menace of Attila the Hun. Eistuf, the Lombard king, was nearly at the gates of the Eternal City. King Pippin's nine-year-old son, the future Charlemagne, led the Pope by his mount's bridle to the palace. In an imposing ceremony of incense, pageantry, and Latin stage in the Abbey of Saint-Denis, Pippin was anointed with holy oil and again pronounced king by virtue of the authority reposed in the Pope by St. Peter. The Franks pledged to uphold papal territorial claims in Italy in a military, cam in a military campaign that renounced the victor's usual real estate compensation, a distinct disincentive to many of the great nobles. But to all such concerns, Stephen had brought a remarkable answer in his saddlebags, one of history's most famous forgeries. As Stephen patiently explained to Pippin, Constantine I had deeded to the bishops of Rome all the imperial territory, property of Italia, and rights thereunto as he departed for the new capital on the Bosporus. The donation of Constantine presented a powerful argument. With the Pope riding in his baggage wagons, King Pippin entered Italy in late summer of 754. The Lombards sued for peace, withdrew from the Duchy of Rome, and agreed to return the confiscated lands to the papacy. 
To French scholars, Charlemagne, who is next, and his Spanish campaign of 778 remains a somewhat embarrassing sidebar to which little attention is paid, except for the famous ambush of Roland at Roncesvalles. In reality, Charlemagne intended to add Al-Andalus with its Muslims forcibly converted and its subject Christians and Jews pledged to himself in a huge Carolingian empire that now included already much of Italy. Charlemagne headed for the Pyrenees, quote, at the head of all the forces that he could muster, says Heinard, his faithful biographer, of what was really Europe's first international military operation. The shock of Christian armies bent on occupying their cities galvanized the Andalusian political class. For the first time in history, part of the Dar al-Islam was under attack, significant attack, from the people of the Christian book. Whether the cry, the Franks are coming, actually ricocheted in their narrow streets, it is certain that Cordovans heard their Moedin sound some similar alarms in the summer of 778. Had Charlemagne's invasion been successful, it would have accelerated the armed confrontation with Islam by four centuries. Instead, the army assembled from virtually every corner of the realm failed to conquer a single hostile Muslim city. Instead, it had leveled the walls of the Basques Pamplona, the only Christian city along the line of march. A 20th century interpreter calls the Song of Roland poetic, poetic history, histoire poétique. To minds of the Dark Ages and later times, the ambush at the summit of the Western Pyrenees unfolded literally as related by the author of the greatest song of deeds or chanson de geste. Whoever he was, the author, Turoldus, put into decasyllabic verse near the close of the 11th century, not long before the First Crusade, and at about the time probably the Bayeux tapestry was woven, a story that became first the national epic of France, and soon thereafter, one of the great constitutive myths of Christendom. Turoldus, who would have known the available Latin translation of the Iliad, serves up the biggest clash of civilizations since the Greeks and the Trojans with Islam as the enemy. The elimination of the true perpetrators from Charlemagne's failed Frankish invasion of Al-Andalus permits the transformation of a costly sneak attack by Christian Basques on a mountain trail into a Manichaean standoff between two civilizations. This foundational document, written down three centuries after Roncesvalles, was to be a superordinate factor in the European sense of self and of otherness, of what Europeans were and others were not. Though much of it was a fabrication of history, it possessed the higher truth of folk myth. We remember that the great saga unfolds as Salmanu's grand coalition of Christian knights as 30 leagues march beyond the mountain and the Saracens spring their trap. To his alter ego, Count Oliver, who thrice uh, appeals that Roland blow the Oliphant, an ivory horn whose reverberations in the valley below would bring reinforcements, Roland grandly retorts that such would be, to do such would be an outrage. 
Oliver, the anti-Roland, protests his friend's perversity, saying through gritted teeth, la prudence est plus importante que la bravoure, prudence is more important than valor. Fighting to the last man, Roland and Oliver perish with the flower of Frankish chivalry. The heroic individualism prized in the Chanson de Geste was not a right possessed by the European everyman, to be sure, or every woman. Not all Franks were Rolands, most were peasants, priests, merchants, and common folk, but all Rolands were Franks. And since the best of the Franks were Rolands and stars thereafter, therefore, of a warrior class that was fast becoming a warrior caste, Franks in general imbibed and propagandized the virtues spilled at Roncevaux. And in time, then, the Franks became Europe's archetypal sword bearers. In the erudite phrase of one literate uh, one uh, literary scholar, the Song of Roland served as the inspiration for the Gesta Dei per Francos, works of God through the Franks, or text for the West in a word. Nor is it reductionist to underscore that Turoldus's epic embedded the otherness of Islam deep in the memory banks of the West. During the next two centuries, the ninth the 10th, Muslim Europe and Christian Europe faced each other in a delicate equipoise at the Great Pyrenees Divide. Andalusia's golden age unfolded in the reign of the remarkable Amir and Caliph Abd al-Rahman III, 912 to 961, the new Caliph's palace city, the Madinit al-Zara, which rose on the slopes of the Sierra de Cordova, three miles northwest of the Andalusian capital, was an architectural hyperbole whose remains beggar Versailles, as in the Caliph's time, its colonnaded great halls, geometric gardens, and cascading fountains humbled generations of ambassadors and awed subjects. Caliphal Cordoba, as befitted a world capital, dressed itself up spectacularly during Abd al-Rahman's golden reign. Cordoba's 70-odd libraries amaze modern scholars all much, as much, almost as much as they stunned literate Christians of the late 10th century. There would be nothing comparable at all elsewhere in the West to the city's main library of 400,000 volumes of mostly paper manuscripts. Edward Gibbon, delighted at the book worship of the citizens of bibliophilia, he disdainfully contrasted to the paucity of written works in the Christian West. The availability of paper made from bark, linen, and hemp, not the papyrus of pressed uh, reeds of the Egyptians, would have an impact on Muslims similar to the printing press on Europeans 400 years later. Cordoba's narrow streets were lined by thousands of small shops and workshops where weavers produced brocades, silks, and woolens, craftsmen-shaped crystal, and tooled the famous Cordoban leather. There would be paved streets lighted by torch. An abundance of inns and hostelries would accommodate travelers on business, its 900 public baths serving citizens as attentive to hygiene as to cultivated relaxation over food and games. A Saxon nun of rare learning and extraordinary influence for her sex and time, 
would describe Cordova of Abd al-Rahman III's as the brilliant ornament of the world, an epistolary effusion that became famous. Notwithstanding the redoubling of Muslim-Christian hostility after the fall of Toledo in 1085 to Alfonso VI of Leon Castile, an Indian summer of interfaith collaboration of Christians, Muslims, and Jews prevailed in Andalusia for some 75 years afterward, what contemporaries call the Convivencia. The conveyor belt at Toledo transmitted most of what Paris, Cologne, Florence, and Rome knew of Aristotle and Plato, Euclid and Galen, the Hindu numbers, and Arab astronomy. But after the second decade of the 13th century, however, the lauded convivencia was chased into oblivion by Muslim and Christian holy warriors respectively shouting, God is great, Allahu Akbar, and St. James the Moorslayer, Santiago Matamoros. By then, the exceptional civilization presided over by the Umayyad emirs and caliphs of Cordoba for some 275 years was but a memory cherished by Spain's Moriscos and reviled by its Christians. For centuries thereafter, the main outlines of this story trace the rise of a reciprocally reassuring ignorance and an addiction to war as the substitute for the complexities of coexistence. God's crucible is, as I've said, the product of hindsight, the delayed inspiration of an African research sojourn. It so happens that the book's earliest field notes were jotted down on the 11th day of September in Rabat, Morocco, the first day of my topographical research junket. The year was 2001. I thought then, on that staggering day, as I still do, that large historical outcomes are far more often contingent than inevitable, and that if so, it then behooves all of us in a time of heightened global interaction to resist the eschatologies of the cultural and political simplifiers. Thank you. Professor Lewis, uh, just, you'll have to sit down. Oh, may I sit down? All right. <laughs> for giving us not only these, those pivotal points, but for um, immense uh, breadth, cultural breadth, perceptions, European uh, sense of, of, of self. Uh, we have about up to 30 minutes for, for questions. Uh, I'm sure there are many questions. I'll take them in the groups of about three, if they're not too long. <laughs> Please. Thank you very much. Um, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, um, but I have um, read a book by Bernard Lewis, his Discovery of Europe. And I was interested um, on your, uh, your account of uh, the way that Charles Bastard um, and his, the monks, uh, documented the Battle of Poitiers. And I was wondering, in, are there any reliable contemporaneous accounts of that battle from the uh, Muslim side that you know of? Uh, no, no. <laughs> not, okay. none at all. 
uh, th there is only the, the, the in Arabic statement uh, that these men were martyred. Uh, 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 there was a, a, a martyrdom on, on the, uh, the field of battle. Uh, no, there, there are no descriptions uh, at all. Uh, it is true, though, that the word Frank, uh, as a generic for uh, Christian uh, enemies, uh, originates at about that time. Right. So, mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, um, Professor David. Uh, fascinating lecture. Um, my question was um, that you mentioned in your speech that um, the non-Muslims in Spain, they had certain restrictions, such as dress code, not building a church in the houses, or some certain restrictions based upon those. Um, my question was, is it based upon uh, any historical evidence, or the pact of Omar is the cases which uh, many historians uh, use uh, as um, the evidence to establish this case. Uh, my question is, is it, is it Pact of Umar which is, the, which is the base for this assertion or do we have any historical evidence to prove this that non-Muslims were treated like that in Islamic uh, Thank you. Yes. I didn't say the Muslims had restrictions. Did you say that? Oh, yes, no. Uh, yes, the answer to the question is yes, uh, in, in, in amplitude. There is no doubt about these restrictions. Uh, they're written down uh, in, in Arabic, and uh, uh, so you, you should believe them. However, the, the, the good, I think the purport of your question might be uh, how uh, robustly were they uh, applied and, and, and enforced. And there one can't be uh, quite so sure. Uh, I think I think one can say that these restrictions in their uh, robustness fell away in time, uh, were applied uh, in uh, 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 sometimes uh, depending on the whim of the ruler perhaps, or uh, that perhaps the uh, uh, the, um, uh, the the chief kadi might uh, think that uh, things needed uh, tightening up. But uh, and in time, things, uh, those restrictions were less and less uh, observed. And that's very clear in Al-Andalus because the rate of conversion after the 8th century accelerates almost logarithmically uh, so that indeed you don't have many Christians left at the rate things were going. And that, and that creates uh, some tensions on the part of Christians who feel that, uh, that they, are, they are losing their identity. And that results in a, an interesting moment in the 9th century when... Uh, Christians, uh, a small group of Christians, uh, go out of their way to offend uh, the, um, uh, the, the Sharia and are uh, executed uh, publicly uh, in the uh, Cordoban Square. But some, some literature written in uh, Latin, as everyone else was at that time writing in Arabic, uh, uh, of, of uh, Christian propaganda will serve the purpose of what will become the convivencia later, that is, in the next century. Uh, those uh, observations that uh, um, uh, this cosmopolitanism that seems to be so seductive is a terrible threat to us will have great impact on the uh, uh, beliefs of people later.
the fact that you've got the Battle of Poitiers right at the, at the front and that you've got religion rather than empire uh, also in the front line suggests uh, to me that uh, the only way that Islam could spread was by the sword. I mean, that may be a wrong conclusion, but that is it was stopped by the sword, but otherwise it would have spread by If we look, however, at European culture, not just in that part of Europe, but over the whole continent, uh, you will find that uh, Europeans write in Latin or in Cyrillic. Um, that they have effectively adopted the Roman, both the Eastern and West Roman cultures. And many of those cultures were adopted not through conquest, but actually the people from the North, the Germanic and the Slavic tribes uh, actually invaded the Roman Empire and conquered parts of it, but then they, on the basis of their own free will, adopted superior civilization. So it wasn't spread by the sword, but the suggestion here could be, could be a wrong one, that Islam could only be spread by the sword. Well, there are two points you make. Uh, yes, I, I think I would concede that the first point, that the jihad is of its uh, nature um, uh, and militaristic. However, the other meaning for it is, uh, is struggle, internal struggle. However, let's look at the, that, uh, that spread. Let's uh, go back and look at, say, the collapse of these two empires, the Sassanid and the neutering of the uh, Byzantine. Now, why is Islam so successful as it moves across the North African littoral and as it moves uh, east towards uh, India in, uh, in a century's time? It's because the subject populations are more than willing to embrace the bargain that Islam proposes. Why? Well, one, they, they are winning, and so people, are, people tend to uh, make decisions based on outcomes. But also because of the, the religious intolerance of the Eastern Roman Empire, not, not the Sassanid Persian Empire. Zoroastrianism is indeed uh, fairly uh, open-minded. But Christianity is problematic. And the problem is that there is one kind of Christianity that the Patriarch of Constantinople and the various emperors insist be embraced and that was a monophysitism which uh, was not agreeable to large numbers of the, the, uh, of the community. Nestorians, for example, moved to Iran because of that. Monophysites with a slightly different tincture of what it means uh, are receptive to Islam. And so when uh, the, the great Caliph Umar uh, uh, leads his people along, he is, in fact, not really conquering people. He is simply accepting surrender. And the, the proposition is, you know, you can embrace us, uh, you can uh, uh, pay the tax, or you can, if you resist us, of course, have certain unpleasantnesses. And so it seems to me it's important to uh, understand the jihad in, in, in a kind of uh, pas de deux of uh, violence and readiness to, uh, uh, to scum. Now, uh, your uh, depiction of the Germans is certainly very, very problematic. I think uh, you, you would have to concede, sir. Um, uh, um, and indeed, uh, part of my uh, one chapter, which uh, on, on the Carolingian Crusades, <coughs> deals with the way in which Catholic Christianity becomes so militant and intolerant. And one of the reasons is that the Germans between the Elbe and the Rhine that is, the Saxons, had uh, a determination to keep their pagan Valhalla gods. 
They were quite happy with them. Charlemagne had a different point of view. And as you know, 30 years of ethnic cleansing uh, takes place before the Saxons are housebroken. And in housebreaking the Saxons and ethnic cleansing them and taking thousands and moving them to various places, uh, Charlemagne <coughs> issues a capitulary, the capitulary, the Saxon capitulary, and it prescribes what Christianity is from this point going to be. And if you deviate, uh, capital punishment. Now, it's for the Saxons, but it is that Saxon capitulary that really inseminates uh, a Catholic Christianity. And so you have the odd thing that it's true that jihad conquers by force, but you have a Catholic Christianity which says there is no deviation acceptable at all. And so there you are. Um, uh, well. Thank you very much. And something you just said actually prompts this question. Uh, you mentioned that there were some Christians who became radicalized, let's say, um, because they felt that they were losing their identity. And I'm curious about it, what, what you think with what's happening today. And if you see similar signs amongst both Christian and Muslim communities of radicalization as a re kind of a reaction to one another, what's going on and the changes, and I keep thinking again about the Danish cartoon, and then there's the uh, Dutch film uh, filmmakers putting out a film on Islam that is having to put it onto the internet because they you know theater will post it and things like that. I'm seeing reactions and. It, I'm curious if you can draw upon what you said about what happened historically to things that might be going on today or what you think might happen. I, I'm not sure I didn't quite get the question because of the echo. Could, could you? I think I got you right. You were asking about uh, how, uh, what lessons can be learned from the historical precedents for contemporary conflicts or contemporary perceptions between... Are you seeing any echo today? Christians? Because it was something you said that really seemed to trigger in my mind when I look at what's happening today locally in Europe and what's been going on in the news. Uh, it seems, I'm curious if you seem to think that there's a similar activity at work based on what was happening back then, something similar happening today where you're having schisms occur and, and radicalization perhaps occurring in different camps because of the risk of fear of losing identity or fearing that one identity is crowding in on another. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, um, the, in, in the, uh, the last chapter of, of, of the book um, <clears throat> deals with uh, uh, three personalities, really two, uh, but, but three who represent uh, different uh, uh, peaks in the culture of Al-Andalus. Um, one is uh, Musa ibn Maimun, or Moses Maimonides. The other is Ibn Rushd, or Averreos, uh, a Muslim. And the other is Ibn Hazm, uh, a conservative uh, a Muslim. Um, and what is significant about them is that those three uh, intellectuals uh, represent the fulfillment of, the, of their traditions of, uh, of intellectual inquiry, uh, of science, uh, of, uh, 
of collaboration and all of that. And yet, they are born at just about the time, or they achieve their fame just at the time when they are unwelcome, both by Christians and by Muslims. Tolerance, intellectual inquiry are no longer serviceable politically. And so you have them being condemned for, I suppose, cartoons, as it were, in that Averroes was to write a fundamental text, Tahafut, in which he would say that those who deny causation really deny God. Those who refuse to inquire really are not serving the religion. Maimonides, the same sort of statement that he, that God doesn't play dice with the universe and there are rules and what have you. Well, but they are defamed and persecuted. Ibn Rushd's writings are consigned to the flames, appreciated in Paris, but not in Islam. And Moses Maimonides, who had written in Arabic, leaves his confessional, his position of congeniality with Islam behind and renounces that. So these are, it seems to me, examples of openness, which is no longer tolerated by either side. And this is, I guess, where we are perhaps today, where there is this profound misunderstanding. I was just at Cambridge yesterday, and I was unmindful of the fact that the Cambridge student newspaper also had cartoons depicting the prophet, and there had been a great dust-up at Cambridge. And so that explained why I had rather a large audience and that people wanted answers that, of course, I could not give, as I do end the book in 1250. Thank you, Professor. First of all, as you just described, the 7th century, 8th and 9th almost, and especially in the contemporary era, especially in the 20th century, we have two world wars, and especially in the 21st, we have war on terror. Can you just compare the motives behind, at that time, the invasions, battles, and especially what kind of attitudes of that time, the people who did, they behaved with the society, motives before to take that invasion, what kind during the invasion, and especially after that, and what we are facing nowadays, totally, you can say, a gloomy picture of the Islam, Muslim, and especially, I would say, the insecure human beings. How you compare, and especially, do you comment on it? Thank you very much. Would you repeat that question? No, I just said it's an enormous question. I was wondering to the extent to which you felt you could answer it. Could you hear the question? No, I think people didn't hear the question. Thank you. 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 Th
Well, you, you, you were asked, if I, correct me if I've got you wrong, but you, were, you wanted to correct, you wanted to see whether there's any comparison of, of, of motives and of attitudes then and now. Mm -hmm. I just requested that you can just compare <laughs> the motives behind at the times the battles and expeditions expeditions, and especially we have now in the two, uh, two wars in the 20th century and 21st, there is war on terror. What kind of behavior at the times, the people who did that battles, and now we are facing especially the insecure human being everywhere and the gloomy picture of the Muslims and Islam. Yes. Well, um, it, it is a large question, and um, I'm, I'm not sure I have a, um, a, 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 a ready answer. I, I think, though, that <coughs> we're dealing with ra rather different motives. Uh, that is, uh, today it seems to me that this war on terror is to serve uh, purposes that really have very little to do, of course, with religion, but have to do with the maintenance of the military-industrial complex uh, uh, access to, uh, to fossil fuels, uh, and also, of course, the elephant in the, the, the room of the 20th century, which is the Palestinian-Israeli issue. And those things, it seems to me, uh, really explain uh, what can be viewed, I guess, depending on what lens you, you use, as wars on terror or uh, as... Uh, uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalism or Islamo-fascism. I mean, what, what an incredible neologism, but favored, of course, by some neoconservatives, uh, very close indeed to uh, one of the presidential uh, uh, candidates, or at least he, he, he was, no longer. Um, uh, whereas things were a little, I think, uh, 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 different uh, uh, at this point in time, at this point in time being these several centuries I deal with, where it's a very slow process before people really uh, have been um, so, um, uh, b b before the thing is really so dichotomous that there's no turning back. It takes three or four centuries before Muslims face Christians as Muslims facing Christians. Um, a, a good illustration of that is uh, the, uh, the, the, the Spanish uh, or the, uh, the, the Andalusian analog to Roland, uh, of course, uh, the Cid. Uh, and if you ask uh, a, a Spanish person, well, what was the Cid up to? He said, well, he was a great hero like Roland. But he wasn't. If you, he was, in fact, a sword for hire. Uh, first he serves the Zaragozan uh, Amir, then he serves uh, uh, somebody from Leon Castile, and he takes real estate on his own in Valencia. And that was quite typical of Muslims and Christians until about the, uh, the top of the 13th century, uh, where it's not religion, it's real estate, it's politics, and uh, that sort of thing. There comes a time, though, where they square off uh, under ideology, but it took a very long time before that happened. In the 20th century, almost in no time at all, uh, we have a declaration of war on a, a part of the world in order to spread democracy. And that's all very curious. And uh, uh, I think that that uh, is, uh, uh, one gets a handle on that by looking at really what is behind the, the slogans of, of the period. I, of course, it's also true that, isn't it, that 
I was looking at a BBC debate in Doha, and a number of Muslim participants were saying that Islam has the obligation, indeed, to begin to interrogate itself. It can't blame the West, and it has, indeed, allowed itself to be perceived as fundamentalist and as unreceptive to modernity. And if that's true, then I think a debate within the Islamic community, at least where it's safe to have such a debate, is certainly to be encouraged. I know there's a question here, but there was... Well, I think you were first. What was the significance of the papacy during the period you look at? Did that relationship... Did it have a relationship with the Frankish kingdoms? Did that relationship change over the period you look at? Well, you make a case for political separation after these battles, but was there perhaps still continuing cultural influence from Andalusia into Europe? I'm thinking kind of a tradition of European courtly love, the troubadours there in the south of France. Was that influence in contact with Andalusia? Yes, well, yes. The source of the... I think it was... Who was it? William IX and his son, William X, who occupied a township far in the north of Spain, Barbastro. And there, for some six months of occupation, they were stunned by the level of sophistication, by the gentility of the denizens. They had to leave because, finally, the Emir of Zaragoza assembled a sufficient force to expel them. But they took the women with them, and they took the dress codes with them, and very soon those kisans, as they were called, those singing women, they are being listened to, and out of that comes these love songs of the troubadours. Indeed, the source of the French troubadours, musically, musicologically, comes from Islam in the northeast. Yes, so there is that connection. This is a little bit beyond my expertise, but there is a wonderful group of essays in the second volume of Selma Jayussi's Muslim Spain, which I take to be just an indispensable primer for any of us who want to know about this time. I know there are lots of other questions, but I think I'll only take two more. This gentleman here was the first one, and I think you were the beard with the second one. So please, if you'd like to ask your question. I'd better stand up because I can't see. Thanks. Is that better? The boy jacket. Thanks. You crystallized a lot in that thing, that essentially that wonderful historic civilization, about 275 years, you said. And this idea of spread by somebody, the questions have come out, that Islam was spread by Islam, because that's a no-brainer. Of course they had battles after battles. But it was the consequences 
which are which is what you've crystallized. And that's what we have now. We have all that civilization from Arabic minerals coming from India and alcohol and so on and so on. But it's interesting since so many questions have tried to extrapolate what we can learn from history, from what you can learn and tell us to present day. It's very simple that the end of that historic period civilization came about through fundamental religion, is it not? From what you were saying and from what I know. And that's really what we have guard against now. Religious fundamentalism, you say? Yeah, yeah, because as you said, and as I understand, it was the religious bigots who came over from North Africa and who fought. Yes, well... And brought uh, that civilization down uh, well, with the Christians. Well, certainly one, one ought to take under consideration that, uh, that, that interpretation. Uh, may I suggest this, though? Um, and again, I, I, I think I don't have to have ready answers beyond 1215, but... <laughs> Um, <clears throat> there was a time when secular, when secular regimes uh, prevailed throughout uh, the Muslim world, and they were modernizers. Uh, they may have been somewhat corrupt, uh, they may have been somewhat inefficient, but you think of the Nasser's, and you think of the Ba'athists, indeed, you think of these, uh, these forces. And uh, <clears throat> at, at some point, they, uh, uh, they lose traction with their own people. They lose credibility. Uh, and there are reasons for that, and I would think that maybe um, uh, uh, the, the French scholar, um, uh, uh, oh dear me, am I going to have a senior moment? Gilles, isn't that, isn't that who I'm trying to think of? Yes. Uh, it gives us some pretty good insights as to what happens. In any case, uh, you have the disgrace of, of the modernizers uh, after World War II throughout the Middle East. Uh, and I think that that has to, uh, uh, is where one begins to look uh, at the origins of fundamentalism, not to see a kind of uh, um, unbroken line from the Almoravids and the Almohads to the 20th century, but that things, that history is, there's a rupture in history in, 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 uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the Mesopotamia. Uh, and uh, people turn away from modernity, and they believe that modernity does them no favors, or that the regimes that espoused it did them no favors. And as those regimes lose control, of course, they cede to uh, they cede public education to the madrasas. Uh, and uh, this is a time when modernity struggles against what the underemployment of populations, uh, males, uh, underemployment of 60 percent of populations that uh, are of the age of, uh, of only 50%, 70% were under the ages of 25. So that is a formula for great turbulence, uh, for uh, frustration, and for violence, uh, and for ignorance. Uh, and uh, we can call it fundamentalism, but I think that is uh, to spare ourselves the kind of analysis that we ought to press if we really want to get a handle on why why the world is going the way it's going. I know that many people would like to ask more questions, and that's a, you know, a reflection of our speaker, but I think we, we have to uh, have mercy on him. I think this should be the last, <laughs> last question. Uh, well, I sorry, you could ask one. Uh, yeah, my question is, uh, do you have uh, optimism in terms of uh, counter-narrative 
in whatever form, uh, say, uh, scientific, academic, uh, technological, um, to ensure that an openness could be maintained um, in a sector where you have, for instance, uh, very great difficulties to find what is actually the difference, say, between a hero and a hired hand. Now, uh, very concretely, the Foreign Office in the moment defends um, uh, a gentleman who was bred in Eton, which is an important uh, institution in the UK, who uh, is now uh, accused in Central Africa. And I mention this case because it is related to um, the interests of Islam, so to speak, because here we are in Africa, which is you know, not far away from the centers of the necessities for counter-narratives. He's accused of uh, uh, arranging a takeover of an African state. The, uh, uh, the Foreign Office uh, is defending his civil rights because he was uh, delivered from one African country to another one in the middle of the night, which is quite interesting. Um, I mention the civil rights of this gentleman, uh, so obviously in the eyes of the Foreign Office and hero, he himself describes himself, by the way, I, I, as I a higher hand, um, in terms question. of the notion of Sharia, that means the clash of the counter-narratives in terms of the legal systems of both these uh, uh, points which we, uh, geographical uh, territories which we mentioned, Europe and Islam. I think you began by asking if I had a sense of optimism. Uh, I would like to. You are optimistic. <laughs> thank you. About the capacity for a counter-narrative. Thank you very much. I think, but before I thank Professor Lewis, can I just let you know that Professor Lewis is prepared to do some book signing outside here in the lobby. And those of you who already have his book, can form an orderly queue. Those of you who would like to purchase it, <laughs> there are also some books for sale out there, and then you can join the orderly queue. Uh, but can I just finish by uh, saying that uh, we don't believe you when you say that you stop in 12.15, I'm afraid. <laughs> and uh, both the paper and the answer to the questions gave us an enormous amount of sort of cultural and historical breadth. And thank you very much for a very thought-provoking lecture. Thank you.